So it's my joy to, to um, be able to preach this morning. And uh, as you know, we are approaching Easter. And so we've been looking at the story of Jesus running up to Easter and trying to understand uh, as best as we can the wonder of his death and resurrection. And it's part of our series uh, on a portrait of Jesus, trying to understand who Jesus is. And the big question of, of the Gospel of Mark is trying to understand who Jesus is. All through the Gospel, you see people asking this question, who is this man, Jesus? And again, we're going to see today in the trial before Pilate, that question comes up again. They're still trying to identify who Jesus is. And some of them know certainly who he is, and some are still wondering about who he is. And uh, just before I get into it, I just rem remembered, Michael Hunter, it's your birthday. Is it not your birthday today? And you are here. Well, happy birthday, Michael. <laughs> happy birthday to, uh, we can't sing, but I could sing for you, but uh, all right. So we're going to have a look from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15. Um, again, it's a, it's a chunky portion this morning. Uh, I'm going to just make three comments uh, on three different themes out of this this morning, and I'm going to read the first 20 verses to you. And it says this, Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from whom the people requested, and a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And they put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to be crucified or to crucify him. What an amazing, amazing portion that we're going to look at this morning. And uh, like I said, there are three things that I'd like to try and understand a little bit better as we look at it together. And the first is the silence of Jesus in uh, the presence of those that accused him. 
Secondly, the fact that they chose Barabbas rather than Jesus. And then thirdly, the mockery of the soldiers and uh, what we can learn from that as well. So let's have a look then at um, the first of these themes, the silence of Jesus. And in verse 1, right at the beginning, we see it's, uh, it's at first light. It's the first thing in the morning, on the Friday morning. And the Sanhedrin meets again to confirm the conclusions that they had reached the night before. Remember, I told you last week that's already illegal. They should have waited a whole uh, night and a day before meeting again. Um, and they, they, they themselves had no power to carry out the death penalty. So they know that they have to bring Jesus before the Roman governor because the de death penalty can only be carried out by the Romans themselves. And so they bind Jesus and they take him to Pilate. And what happens now only serves to further illustrate just how, um, how, how rooted in bitterness the Jewish authorities were, the Jewish elite were towards Jesus. Because you remember in the trial before the Sanhedrin, what they accused him of was blasphemy, was, was insulting God. So it was basically a charge that was contained into, uh, as a part of their belief as Jews. And they knew that they would have little impact on Pilate, who really wasn't interested in Jewish affairs at all, in terms of religious arguments. So they evolve a political charge to bring against Jesus. And so Luke's account of the story makes that quite clear. In Luke chapter 23, the first two verses say this, The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading the nation and for, for, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, in other words, to pay taxes, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So they try to evolve this charge of, uh, of, of treason and make it a political charge. Now, you know that um, when Jesus was questioned about taxes, he said quite plainly to, in front of everyone, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give, give to God what is God's. So these charges that they are trying to bring against Jesus uh, from the, what we know in the Scripture are, are, in, are, are, are lies anyway. And verse 10 says, Pilate even knows that. And he realizes it's self-interest on the part of the high priests and the Pharisees that they are bringing Jesus for trial. And as I mentioned in my introduction, here comes the question that everyone's been asking all through this gospel. Who is this man, Jesus? And so verse 2 says, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers in this most unusual way. He kind of says this. He says, you've said so. He neither says yes or no. He simply says, you've said so. And when Jesus replies like this, I think he's saying this. He's saying, I've claimed to be the king of the Jews, but you know that the way I mean that and the way that the Jewish authorities mean that is not the same thing. Because you know that I'm not a political revolutionary. You know that my kingdom is not a political one. My kingdom is a kingdom of love. And Pilate knows that perfectly well. And so Jesus answers and says, well, you've said it. And he's kind of challenging them in that moment as he says this. And what is most amazing to me is that as the charges multiply, um, Jesus simply remains quiet. He says nothing. And I was reflecting this week and thinking a, a little bit about silence and how we can understand silence. And I want to give you five ways that we can understand silence as we live our lives. And uh, I think Jesus is, is um, silent in a particular way, which we'll get to. But first, we can have silence as an act of wonder of admiration. 
Now, I trained as a musician at, um, uh, at university, and one of the things that I used to do regularly was go to hear the orchestra play in the, the city that I grew up in. And sometimes after you've had an outstanding musical performance, have you ever been in an in a, in a, in a, um, audience where the only appropriate response they've played so well is silence? Have you ever been in a place like that where it's not applause that comes, but there's just this absolute wonder that someone could play so well and the audience is just silent for a moment? Or what about creation? What about when, you, when you've been sitting and you've just seen the most amazing view or sunset or view over the ocean, and you're sitting there with your friends and your family, and you actually, it's such an amazing moment, it's inappropriate even to speak, and you just sit there in silence. There's a silence that comes from wonder, that comes from admiration. There are no words sometimes to express things, and then often we express it best in silence. Secondly, there's the silence of contempt. I've, I've experienced this in my life. When you're having an argument with someone or you make an excuse about something and they simply respond with silence. They don't say anything. And in that moment, they're saying, you know, your argument is so lame, I'm not even going to comment on it. That's basically what they're saying to you. There's a silence of contempt. Actually, it's not even worth speaking about. All right? That's another kind of silence. Or thirdly, there's the silence of fear. The silence of fear. One of the things that we've seen uh, over the last um, year in many different areas is that people are finding courage to speak out about issues that they haven't spoken out before. So Black Lives Matter, or uh, now we've seen in Australia, women are saying, actually, we've had enough of being uh, sexually abused, and there's a whole thing happening in, in, in um, Australia. There's a whole thing happening here in terms of, of, of sexual violence against women, and people are finding courage to speak out about these things. And often, there's a silence that comes when people are simply afraid to speak because they can't find the courage inwardly to say things they know they have to say. It's like fear is a gag, and it keeps people silent. It's that kind of fear as well. And fourthly, there's the silence that comes from a heart that is hurt. A heart that is hurt. It's, it's true that when people have been so deeply wounded, they don't protest or speak out. Sometimes the deepest sorrow is expressed in just it's, things are past anger, Things are past rebuke. It's past anything you can say. And the only response is that silent look of absolute grief that someone expresses. And I'm sure you've, you've, you've had that in your life. You've seen someone who's just so broken and so hurt, they can't even say anything. And there's the silence that comes from a heart that is deeply wounded. None of those are the things that I think Jesus felt. This is what I think Jesus, why he responded with silence. Fifthly, there's a silence which I would call the silence of tragedy. And this, is, this results when there's nothing left to be said. Um, and this is what I'm, I think Jesus, why he kept quiet. He, he, he knew that there was absolutely no bridge left between him and the Jewish authorities. He knew that there was nothing good in Pilate that he could appeal to anymore because Pilate was so weak and so willing just to facilitate what the mob wanted. He had no, no compass in, 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 inside of him that Jesus could appeal to. 
So all the lines of communication are broken, and there's nothing that can penetrate the hatred of the Jews that is pointed towards him. And so there's like this iron curtain that has come down, and Jesus knows that there are no words that are going to penetrate that. And I was just reflecting on that and thinking this, it is a terrible thing that a person's heart becomes so hard that even Jesus knows it's no good to speak. Think about that. Jesus knew of these Jewish authorities. He knew of Pilate. Their hearts were so hard, there was nothing he could do to change. Even Jesus, there was nothing he could do to change their minds or change their hearts. And so he simply keeps quiet. That's the first theme that we see, the sense of Jesus not speaking. The second thing I'd like to look at with you is, is Barabbas, the release of Barabbas. Um, we know nothing more of Barabbas other than what we know in the gospel story. Uh, he wasn't a common thief. He was a bandit. He was an outlaw. Uh, we've been watching, we've, we've um, uh, our boys have encouraged us to think about some things, and we've been looking at uh, uh, the life of a man called Paulo Escobar. Ever, anyone heard of him? He was one of the massively wealthy. He, at one stage, he was the, the wealthiest person in the world. He was a drug dealer from Colombia. And it was very interesting as we were looking at the story of this man's life that actually he was very popular with people in Colombia at one stage in his life. He was kind of like a Robin Hood. And so he went around... Um, you know, making money out of drugs, but giving a lot of it away and building tennis courts and uh, trying to up, you know, the town where he grew up, uplift the community in this kind of weird way. And so he was quite a popular person in, 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 at the beginning of, of his, his um, criminal life. <laughs> but uh, it's, it seems like Barabbas was that kind of guy. He was an insurrectionist. He was a part of a, a group of Jews called Sakari. And that simply means the dagger bearers. They were zealots. And they went around murdering people. And uh, they were fanatical nationalists who wanted liberation from the Romans. And so wherever they went, they started uprisings and they were known as the dagger bearers. They gave themselves to assassination and murder. And this is who Barabbas was. And it's quite likely he was also a brave man. And he had this kind of popularity with people, which in some way is understandable as he was trying to throw off Roman rule. I've often heard people ask this question. They've said to me, and how come the crowd welcomed Jesus a week earlier with palm leaves? And when he rode into Jerusalem in, 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 on a donkey, they said, hail, son of David. And the very next week, they are calling for his crucifixion. Well, I want to say, uh, I think there's a simple answer to that. It's that completely different crowd of people. It's not the same crowd of people. Well, why do I say that? Well, because the rest of Jesus was deliberately kept secret. Do you remember that? It happened in the middle of the night. It was deliberately kept secret from the common people by the Sanhedrin. A trial was rushed through in the middle of the night, and no one could have suspected that was going to happen. So I want to put it to you that this group of people that appeared at the trial of Jesus before Pilate weren't the same people necessarily that welcomed him into Jerusalem. They were probably supporters of Barabbas. Because we know from tradition, and the Jewish historians like Josephus bear this out, verse 6 says that it was a tradition to release a criminal or someone at Passover time. And so it's most likely that these people that were 
there were gathered to see the release and call for the re release of, of Barabbas. And uh, the Jewish priests and high priests recognized this opportunity and the, that circumstances have played into their hands. And so they fan this into flame and get the people to demand the release of Barabbas. As I was doing some reading this week, it was interesting to me that some commentators say that Barabbas' name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was a common name, Joshua, common Jewish name. Jesus Bar of Abba is, his, is the surname. So Jesus of the family of Abba. And we know that Jesus, the Christ, was from Nazareth. So there's this kind of really interesting thing that one Jesus was accepted and the other Jesus who truly was the king and the prince of peace was rejected. And so I want to just make some three little comments out of this um, decision that the crowd made to reject Jesus and to embrace Barabbas. And even if it was a different crowd, they made a choice. And this is what they chose. First of all, they chose lawlessness instead of love. It's really interesting. One of the words for sin in the New Testament is anomia, which simply means lawlessness. It's a word for sin. And I was thinking about that this week. You know, in every single one of us, there is, in every human heart, there's a streak that resents the law. We rebel inwardly against those Ten Commandments. You know, there's something in us that if we could steal and get away with it, we would steal. Uh, we do covet, particularly when we, we think we can get away from it. Um, we, 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 we kind of, there's a tendency in us to want to kick off barriers and break the rules and just do our own thing. It's the cry of the human heart, isn't it? Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to respond. I'll decide for myself. The Bible calls that, if that's the attitude of our hearts, that is called anomia. It's called lawlessness. It's called sin. And I want to ask you to really, really think about that as you choose to respond to different things in this time of, of lockdown and, um, and vaccinations or not vaccinations. What is really at the root of it? Is it simply just, ah, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, the Bible calls that anomia, sin. And so there's something inside of us that rebels all the time when anyone tells us to do something. And it's the cry of our Western culture, and we need to be aware of that. And that's really what the, the mob chooses over Jesus. They choose this lawlessness instead of love. Secondly, they choose war instead of peace. They choose this man of blood instead of the prince of peace. You know, there have been thousands and thousands of years of human history, and if you read your history, you'll see that there have only been a couple of hundred years in all of the thousands of years of human history that there's not been a war somewhere where people have been fighting. These last 60 years, 70 years since um, the Second World War are one of the longest periods in history where there's not been a major war in the world. We need to appreciate the time of peace that we have lived in since the Second World War. It is an incredible privilege. All for centuries, all over the world, there have been wars all the time. And once again, we see here human beings in their incredible stupidity trying to set, settle differences through war, which settles nothing. And the mob basically makes the same choice 
that had been made so many times before and so many times since then, they choose violence over love. Thirdly, they choose hatred instead of love. I mean, Barabbas and Jesus are just pictures of two very different approaches to life. Barabbas stands for the way of hate, Sicari, the dagger, revenge, violence, bitterness. That's what he stands for. Jesus stands for the way of love, the way of peace, the way of turning the other cheek, the way of giving people a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. That's what Jesus stands for. And once again, the people choose their own way instead of understanding that the only way to truly win anything is through love. So they make these choices, the crowds. They choose lawlessness instead of love. They choose war instead of peace. And they choose hatred above the way of love. But ironically, or lastly, not ironically, but it is ironic to me that this picture of a guilty man being released instead of an innocent man is actually an absolute illustration of what we believe as gospel believers. It's a picture of what we preach. Every man and woman is guilty before God, and Jesus is the innocent, he is the innocent one. He is the innocent sacrifice. And Jesus dies instead of Barabbas, and Jesus dies instead of us, and all of us are set free. It's a picture of the gospel. That Jesus died for the sins of the world. And although he himself was perfect and absolutely innocent without sin, he was punished for all of us. And the entire sins of the human race are laid upon him so that all of us, like Barabbas, go free. All of us that are guilty. All of us that are lawless. All of us that choose violence instead of peace. All of us that choose bitterness instead of love and hatred instead of forgiveness. All of us are set free. Like Barabbas. It's a powerful picture of the gospel. Every one of us is allowed to go free, just like Barabbas was set free instead of Jesus. And then this little verse 15. And so Pilate had Jesus flogged. Again, if you read any history book, you'll see that they flogged people with a leather cat of nine tails, there were many leather thongs, and in the leather thongs were pieces of lead and pieces of sharp bone, and they whipped the person until there was no skin left on the back of the person. I've read some accounts from Jewish historians which said that the bones of the back were laid bare because they had been beaten so much. Often these people couldn't even, they fell unconscious while they were still being beaten, and many people died while they were being flogged. It was a vicious, unbelievable thing. And for the Romans, this was a precursor to crucifixion. They did this to get the person ready for crucifixion. And that's what they did to Jesus. And lastly, I want to comment on the mockery of the soldiers. They ridicule Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews. They put this purple cloth on him. They put a mock crown on him. They give him mock worship, mock adulation. And again, this question of identity comes up for the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, soldiers. Uh, we know from Mark 10, remember, 
blind Bartimaeus, when, he sees, when Jesus comes past him, what does he call out? He says, Hail, Son of David. Bartimaeus was blind, and yet he knew in his heart that this was Messiah. This was King Jesus. He knew. There were people that knew all the time who Jesus was. The high priests, they also knew, really. And that's why they ask again, are you the king of the Jews? In the trial, they ask it twice. Pilate asked the same question. And now the soldiers, they understand that this man has claimed to be king. And so they begin to mock him as, 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 as the king of the Jews. But the book of Isaiah tells us that Jesus was not a king like any other. He was the suffering king. He was the king of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, the suffering servant. That's how he came. He came riding not on a, not on a stallion into, in, into Jerusalem. He came riding on a donkey, which was a symbol of peace. And so ironically, this is the great ir- irony that absolutely the soldiers in their mockery have actually got it right. This is what I mean. Actually, Jesus does deserve the purple robe. Actually, Jesus does deserve the crown above all crowns. Actually, Jesus does deserve to be worshipped and to knelt before and to be given all adulation by every human heart. He deserves that. And yet he's the suffering king. And so as they mock him, as they mock him as the king, ironically, they are doing the right thing, but they're doing it with incredibly hard, impure motives that reflect the hardness of their hearts. And actually, one day, this is going to be reversed. And those that have mocked him will shake with fear. And those that have done this insincerely, one day, will do it with sincerity. Because ultimately, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And those of us that believe by faith right now, we are doing that already. We are putting onto Jesus a royal robe. We are giving him a crown of many crowns. We are bowing down in worship and saying, Jesus, we recognize who you are. And we give you all of our hearts. We give you all of our adoration. You are worthy of it all. You are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what we now proclaim by faith in trust of who Jesus is, one day the scripture says, every knee will bow when he comes again and they will see that he is the king of glory and you and I, we do that now by faith. That's why worship is so powerful. Every time we sing, every time we gather, we are saying, Jesus, upon you we put the crown. Upon you we put the purple robe. We choose now to bow down and worship because you are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords. That's what worship is. That's why it's so powerful. And we're going to do that now. We're going to worship. We're going to sing one song. We're going to use our bodies. We're going to stamp our feet. We're going to clap our hands. We're going to snap our fingers. We're going to do whatever we can while we can't sing to say to Jesus this morning that he is the king of kings. And he is the, loyal, the, the, the one who deserves the royal robe, the purple robe. And we place a crown of crowns on his head this morning as we worship him. Can you join with me? And let's lift our hearts together. And let's, I want to say, sing, but we can't. But we can use our bodies and we can jump up and down.
to declare that he is the great king. Amen. Let's stand. Clive's going to lead us, and then we'll close.